Section 35 of O. Henry Encore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Poets The journalist poet seems to be a hybrid born of the present day when rapidity and feverish haste are the necessary conditions to success. There is hardly a newspaper of the first class in the land that does not include a jingler in its staff. A journalist is one thing, and a poet should be another. A combination of the two, or rather a man who tries to do the work of both, is very nearly a union of opposites. A journalist is a recorder of transient impressions. He seizes whatever is worthy of note from the swiftly moving stream of current events, and stamping his data with the seal of his own originality if he possesses any. He flings his paper damp from the press at the heads of the public and is off pursuing fresh quarry. He is a machine, but of admirable efficiency. He threshes the chaff from a million happenings of the day and delivers the wheat to those who would flounder helplessly among the piled sheaves if left to themselves. The poet should be of different mold. He should not be vexed with the task of winnowing, but with the golden grains laid before him by his more active brother of the winged feet. He should be allowed to sit apart and view life in its entirety with calmer, larger, and unobstructed vision. A poet-journalist may rise to be a journalist of renown, but he will never be a great poet. The muse is too shy to appear daily at the bidding of an ink-grimed copy-boy. In glancing over the daily papers, we occasionally find a verse of merit that, though evidently scribbled during the daily grind that must come, whether inspiration impels or not, yet has some touch of the true fire. Indeed, many gems that will long be remembered have thus been dashed off in a few minutes, but these are exceptions. Some paper mentioned recently that Frank Stanton wrote his exposition ode at his desk amid the confusion of a newspaper office in two hours, fanning himself with one hand and writing with the other. The ode was said to have been a good one, and much commendation was bestowed upon the writer. Now this is unjust to Mr. Stanton's fame, for he can write poetry and the people will persist in praising those daily jingles of his in the Atlantic Constitution. No one seems to suggest that he could have written a much better ode by taking a day or two over it, and not overheating himself and having to waste so much vital energy in fanning. The idea intended to be advanced is that it is more than likely that newspaper versifiers, as a rule, do not claim to be poets and would rather be known as journalists who sometimes drop into rhyming skits as a relaxation and for diversity. The great public, though, must dub anything poetry that rhymes, and often spoil a good journalist's reputation by insisting on his being passed on to posterity as a poor poet. A good paragraph on a timely subject often gains a spiciness by turned into rhyme, especially in the form of parody. But our newspaper poets have not yet learned the fact that an article uninteresting in the form of prose will not gain in merit when written even in the most faultlessly metered verse. 
Somebody has described poetry as lines of equal length with rhymes at the end and sense in the middle. The daily column, which so many newspaper versifiers now turn out, is a mistake. If it is poetic fame they are seeking, the dimnation grind, as the reel turns, will soon exhaust all the water in the Pyrian spring, as the grist itself bears witness. This is said in reference to those who are really ambitious of winning poetic laurels. Those who attach nothing more than ephemeral importance to their topical skits need no criticism, for they will incur no disappointment. Some of the more serious newspaper rhymesters evidently are making attempts more ambitious than the time occupied in their preparation warrants, and the hasty work and lack of finish and pruning plainly visible in their efforts are to be deplored. If the truth were known, inspiration has played a small part in the production of the most famous poems of the world. It is the patient toil, the unremitting and laborious cutting away of inferior parts, the accurate balance and the careful polish that develops the diamond from the rough stone to the perfect gem. One poem a month from some of our prolific writers may claim our admiration for thirty days, at least. But three in a day have a tendency to force us to save up a portion of our appreciation for the three more we will have dished up to us in the morning. Our southern poets especially are guilty of overproduction. Those among them, most generally accepted as representative voices among our writers of verse, are occupying positions in which they are doing better work in other than poetic lines. A few of them have talent that would bring them fame if allowed space, time, and scope for full development and use. Mr. Will T. Hale, whose poems appear in the Memphis Commercial Appeal, shows a clear and praiseworthy conception of the situation when he says, I dare say the Tennessee poets, including among the many, Walter Malone, Howard McGee, R. M. Fields, Leland Ranking, Mrs. Hilliard, Mrs. Boyle, Mrs. Gilchrist, Mrs. Barrow, and Mr. Lamb, have written jingles which they never called poetry, never expected to be taken as anything more than ephemeral things to be glanced at and forgotten, written in rhyme because as easily written as a prose paragraph. I, an humble versifier, a toiler in newspaperdom, like my confreres throughout the state, arrogating nothing to myself, but pleased if my writings are copied and complimented beyond their deserts. I have done so. I shall continue to do so. Why should it be insisted that I want to cram it down one's throat as poetry? Let me jinglify if I want to. Mr. Hale realizes the transient nature of such verse as the journalist must needs write to fill space although he has written in this way some gems that study could scarcely improve upon. It is doubtful if Mr. Frank Stanton, who has struck some high and abiding chords upon his lyre, could be, or would care to be, remembered by the jingles he turns out daily for his newspaper. Yet, if the popular impression is correct, Mr. Stanton aspires to poetic proficiency and fame. One poem on which he would spend days of labor would do much more toward gaining him reputation than the wonderful number of rhymes that he turns out within that space of time. 
a short time ago, he dashed off two or three verses on a midway dancer called something like Papinta that had a rhythm and lilt and swinging grace to it that were fascinating and truly admirable. The poem was delicate, airy, and sprite-like, and one could almost see the form of the dancer and hear the castanets and guitars while reading the musical lines. But the amount of verse he writes daily will not permit of such a high average. And the moral of it all is that, while he succeeded as a journalist and an interesting writer upon the day's topics, his future as a poet is not being benefited by his overproduction of poetry at present. The late Eugene Field might in time have become a poet of considerable ability, but there is little question that his newspaper labors were too onerous to allow of a thorough development of his poetic powers. The verses he wrote have always been popular because they were simple and musical, and addressed themselves to an almost universal sympathy for children. And his poems, charming and lovable as they were, stopped short of being great. It was the subject and the sentiment, rather than the literary proficiency of his poetical work, that made him so widely known. A poem, to be great and long remembered, must be erected in the same way that a house is built. The foundation, the superstructure, the architectural proportions, the ornament, and finish must be the result of care and labor, or else it abideth not. Judge Albion W. Torgi, whose opinions on matters literary deserves respect, however it be concerning his political proclivities, advises poetic as well as other literary aspirants to always work in the room with an open fire, not for the sake of the fire, but in order that he may burn five sheets for every one he sends to the printer. W. S. Porter, Houston Daily Post, Sunday morning, November 24, 1895. End of section 35.